Father, if you come this morning, we lift up our praises to you. We, we give you our thanksgiving for all the many blessings you have bestowed upon us. We give you thanks for the breath in our lungs, for the life that we have. We give you thanks for the new life that we have as well, for the grace you've given us through your Son and through his Spirit. We thank you this morning for the gift of your Son, for his, his life his incarnation, becoming a human being. Thank you for his teachings and his ministry, his healings and exorcisms. We thank you for his crucifixion on the cross on our behalf, his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to your right hand, where right now he prays on our behalf with us and for us. We thank you for the spirit that he's poured out into our hearts, the spirit that is at work now here in and among us, we pray that, that we would be receptive to the Spirit's um, moving this morning, His acting, that, that we would continue to, as we worship together, be shaped and formed into the people um, that you have called us to be, so that we might both enjoy life of the kingdom and share that life with others. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. If you're a visitor with us, we're in the middle of a sermon series right now called Liturgy. Um, the rhythms that form us. And what we've been doing is we've been looking through the different ways that our lives are built up by certain habits and rituals and patterns and routines, and the way that those, those rhythms and habits shape us and form us as human beings. Humans are inherently storied creatures. Um, since we're very little, we are fascinated and encapsulated by stories all the way until the, you know, old age of 80 and 90 in nursing homes. Um, you have elderly folks who love to hear stories, and we are just a storied kind of people. We think in stories. We categorize in stories. We've got our kiddos here this morning. I'm sure they all have their favorite stories, um, and these stories kind of stick with us. For me, my favorite story is and always has been Peter Pan, and, and my mom used to read me Peter Pan when I was a little kid, and my name being Michael, she'd get to Darling Michael, and she'd be like, that's you, and I'm like, no, I'm not Darling Michael. I was always Peter Pan. This is who I identified with. And there are these, these poetics, right? This imagination um, that's captured in stories that's passed down to other human beings. Um, my favorite line from Peter Pan, I remember as a kid, um, all the way up to today, it comes uh, at the end of a chapter where there's been this kind of battle going on. Um, Peter is on a rock. The water is rising. He's not able to fly, and so it doesn't look good for him. Um, and the, the chapter ends like this with this paragraph. Peter was not quite like other boys, but he was afraid at last. A tremor ran through him like a shudder passing over the sea. But on the sea, one shudder follows another till there are hundreds of them, and Peter just felt the one. The next moment, he was standing erect on the rock again with that smile on his face and a drum beating within him. It was saying, to die would be an awfully big adventure. To die would be an awfully big adventure. This adventurous spirit that, that Peter Pan has, this kind of trap that he finds himself in, never able to grow up and never able to kind of experience what being an adult might be like, having these new um, experiences might, might mean for his life. The, the liturgies that, that surround us, and, and by liturgies, we're defining that as uh, kind of these identity-shaping practices, these identity-shaping rituals that shape who we are, what we love, the kind of people that we become. Um, they're all around us. Um, and we, we've looked at the way that different cultural liturgies exist around us and consciously and unconsciously shape us into who we are. And so we're surrounded by, by liturgies, practices of consumerism all the time. 
this is why very few people get out of kind of a Western world without being a consumerist. Because we're shaped, whether we're aware of it or not, at all times with the message, with the story, with the imaginative allure of acquisition and consumption, finding our redemption or satisfaction or flourishing in the getting of more and, and newer stuff. All liturgies, they have this kind of end goal. We might call it a telos, um, the end, a vision of the good life. And the practice of worship, the liturgies we participate in worship, our rituals and our routines, they also come embedded with a, a vision of the good life. They answer important questions. They, they cast an important story for you and I to, to inhabit and to embody. If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, the scriptures give us a picture of who we are as human beings, why we are here. And in, in giving us this answer, why we are here, I, I think it, it answers for us two questions at once. Not only why we are here in kind of an existential sense, why do we exist as human beings, but also why are we here like now at church? What, what do we come to worship for? What is the Christian practice of worship, Christian liturgy? What is the intention behind that? Let's read together in, in Genesis chapter 1. We'll pick it up in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Humanity is called into existence by the Creator God, and they're called to bear His image. To be the image of God, to be a human being most fully, is, is, is a task. It's not necessarily something you own and can lose. It's something, it's a vocation that you can either live up to or, or not live up to. Human beings are put on creation to kind of reflect and put forth God's wise rule over the rest of creation. He says, go subdue the rest of the world, have dominion over it, cultivate it into my kingdom. I would suggest not only this is our primary purpose as human beings, to, to be God's image bearers, to experience his love, exist in relationship to him, and then mirror that love and wise rule out to the rest of the world. But that's also why it is that we are here in worship, to be remade into God's image, to be shaped into a renewed human being. You see, the story of the scriptures is that humanity did not live up to this task. God then called Israel, and he gives Israel much the same promises. Come together, I will bless you, multiply, go and have dominion over creation. And Israel, much like Adam and Eve, like humanity, fails to this task. And then God sends his son, the image of the invisible one, the true image bearer. And he comes and reconciles the world to himself. And in so doing, allows us to be restored back into the image of God. If you flip with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we get a, a kind of summary of the grand narrative or the grand story of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, picking it up in verse 16, this is Paul writing, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one 
according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Just as God once created humanity out of nothing and called them into existence, now God creates humanity again and calls them back into existence, the saved, redeemed creatures. The old has passed away and the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the the grand narrative. This is the gospel story that that in Christ, God was reconciling the entire world to himself. And because of our role in this process, because we've been caught up in God's saving work, we now are sent out as we once were sent out to bear God's image, the image of Christ, the son to whom we are conformed, to embody the good news. And in the first uh, account, the first commissioning of human beings, we're, said to, or we're told to go out and multiply. And, and we do that through procreation in Genesis 1. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, after Jesus has started his community of followers, he says, go out and multiply, but now go out and do it by making disciples. Go out and embody this message of reconciliation. Go live out this story. Live into this story. And this is, I would argue, the the main task of Christian worship. The end of worship, the point of worship, not just singing songs, but the full practice of gathering together as a community, giving our praises to God together, gathering around the Word of God, gathering around the table of God. The, The end of worship is gathered up with the end of creation, which is to be fully human, fully alive, There's a telos, there's an end goal to the Christian liturgy, to the Christian rhythms of worship. The vision of human life, of human flourishing that it offers to us is not one of acquisition or consumption or power or dominion. It's one of peace and reconciliation. It's one of justice and unity. It's one of love and joy. The goal of Christian worship is a renewal of, to this creation mandate. We are here to be remade in God's image and then sent out as his image bearers to and for the world. In a sense, Christian liturgy exists to help us become characters. In two senses, uh, two senses of the word, we might say, um, it exists to help us become characters in the sense that the, the scriptures present us with a, a grand narrative, a story that we're called to inhabit. In worship, we rehearse this narrative. We we participate and live into this, this story. And it's in this story that we figure out what character we are, what role we play, what part we have in the story. Human beings is, again, how we kind of utilize all of the reality around us as we, we fit it into a narrative, into a, a, a patterned story. And in that story, we figure out who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to do. The question of what should I do is secondary to the question of what story am I am. If I'm in a story of acquisition and consumption, then what I should do is acquire and consume and build up the right skills to to do that. If I'm in a different story, then perhaps my skills should be used differently. Perhaps I should be pursuing other things. 
the purpose of an object, the purpose of a, a being is, is very different if the story changes. You might have a, a real expensive flute, and if you're using it to roast marshmallows, you might think this is a really overpriced stick. It may or may not accomplish the job, but maybe I could get it done just as good with, with just a, a stick off the ground. The story, the aim, the purpose is, is, is very important and determinative for, for what we are to do, what kind of character we're supposed to be. The story we're in determines what becomes a virtue and a vice. So a virtue being a character habit that flourishes us, that, that provides life for us, that becomes second nature to us. A vice being something that traps us and, and takes away and destroys life from us. Um, if you are in a story of conquest, then meekness is not a virtue. Meekness is a vice. It will, in, it will, it will stop you from, from being able to accomplish your goal of conquering. But if you're in the story of the gospel, then meekness, as the scriptures tell us, is a, a virtue. Humility is a virtue. Servanthood is a virtue. These are character traits that actually, maybe paradoxically, bring us to life, to human flourishing. It's the narrative that we situate ourselves in that determines what kind of characters we are supposed to be to find life. And by being regularly immersed in the story of God, in the drama of God, Christ reconciling the world to God, which is, I think, the point of worship, we are invited into the story over and over and over, characterizing ourselves as we rehearse this this drama. Formative Christian worship, liturgy that counteracts the, the rhythms and routines that shape us in directions away from the gospel. True formative Christian worship paints a picture of the good life, of the kingdom, of shalom. It taps into poetry and metaphor, imagery. It seduces our imagination. It pulls out of us a desire to act and walk in a way that results in the peace of God, that results in God's kingdom here on earth. It captures our imagination. We might say that reformative Christian worship always captures imaginations. Worship, it it works by trafficking in stories, by alluding to our imaginations, targeting them. And worship that restores our love is worship that restores our imagination. And so throughout the week, with these different secular or cultural liturgies, we're, we're brought into practices that shape us into a certain type of human being. And then as the body of Christ, we're called together to worship, to be restored, to place ourselves back into the grand narrative of the gospel, to figure out what kind of characters we're called to be, And this is why worship, as we've been arguing throughout this sermon series, stands at the heart of discipleship, at the heart of the process of becoming more like Christ, of following him. Because it's in these embodied practices that we find ourselves indexed with the the narrative of the gospel. There are these plot lines or narrative arcs to the practices of Christian worship. Historically, if you look at what happens in a Christian worship service, um, there's this kind of basic plotline that centers on God's reconciliation, his gracious salvation of all things to himself. And you can look at these different practices and ask questions like, what, what understanding of the world is implicit in this practice? What vision of the good life is inherent, is carried in this ritual? And in Christian worship, you find kind of four big chapters when we gather as Christians. You gather, there's, there's gathering, that's the first chapter, then there's 
listening, and then there's communing, and then there's sending. Gathering, listening, communing, and sending. And what I want us to do is, is pretend that we are kind of Martian anthropologists, okay? We've come from outer space, and I want us to, to look at a Christian worship service as objectively as we can and, and ask yourself, what's happening here? What do these practices mean? What type of people do they create? Much the same way we, we did a thought experiment a couple of weeks ago at the mall. And we asked ourselves, what's happening at the mall? What's the architecture telling us? What are the practices telling us? What are the relationships telling us? What kind of human beings are they creating? If you were to be kind of a Martian scientist looking down on humanity, you'd find that we've got lots of interesting practices that make lots of sense to us, consciously and unconsciously, that shape us and form us into who we are but that are very formative in our lives. And so you can watch kids congregate at the mall and you can learn a lot about them. You can see how they kind of organize their lives. And there are these different routines and rituals and patterns that slowly but surely shape them into who they are. If you were to do this on a Sunday morning for the body of Christ, the community of God's people, I think you would be able to, to, to see a handful of very important things. So when it comes to gathering, okay, God's people gather once a week, in response to a call to worship, a call that comes from God himself. And if, if you were just to watch people come and gather, you'd notice a handful of things about what's happening. The first is that on a Sunday morning, people are getting up and they're going somewhere together. Not everyone is going. Only, only some people of a subset of a society are going. Not even necessarily everyone in the, the home is going. Maybe not everyone is responding to this call to worship, but some are. They're getting up and they're going. The first thing that, that you might notice as kind of this objective viewer of Christian worship is that responding to the call to worship, gathering, creates a people who have a unique and peculiar relationship to time. They are people who are gathered around a, a practice of time, a rhythm of time tethered to a person to a historical person, to, to a first century Jew, Jesus of Nazareth. And every Sunday morning, on the anniversary of his resurrection, they come together to worship. Not connected by an idea, not connected by teachings or ideals, connected by a person. And together they're, they're gathering weekly, while it involves certain practices they participate in every week, is ultimately an annual thing. They are drawn by the time that, that we call the, the Christian calendar, the liturgical year. Some churches participate in this more than others, but just about every Christian church participates in the liturgical year. If you practice Easter, you're participating in the liturgical year. At a certain point every year, we practice the celebration and worship of Jesus' resurrection. And then different churches will, will kind of delve into the Christian year more so or less. You have seasons like Advent, where you think about how the Lord has come in Jesus before Christmas time. You, you think about Jesus coming again in his kingdom to come. You have seasons like Lent, which we're quickly approaching. Valentine's Day starts the season of Lent, a penitential season where we um, confess our sins. We do some, some inner housekeeping as we come towards Easter. What you'll notice throughout the Christian year is Christians, their relationship to time is one both of remembering and anticipation. They're both tethered to this historical event that seems to be like the gravity of, of time for them, the resurrection of Jesus. And yet they are constantly a people of expectation, looking forward. 
The big word we use for this is, is we are an eschatological people. We're people in between the times. We're people not caught up so much by what's happening right now. This makes a big difference in the type of person one is. If one is tethered to the cable news cycle and to what this current administration is doing or not doing or what this sports team is doing or not doing, then one finds themselves kind of tossed around in waves, up and down, up and down. A Christian community gathering, though, they find themselves tethered in this eschatological way where they're not caught up in the moment where all their cards aren't in the basket of what is in front of them. Just watching from a distance as Christians gather on a Sunday, you might start to see how their very gathering, their very response to this call to worship starts to shape them as a people, starts to give them this unique relationship to time. Worship starts when we come together with a a call to worship. In this call to worship, we're reminded of God's gracious initiative that he's at work here through the Spirit. It echoes our, our calling into existence by the Creator. Just as we're called into creation by God, so now we are called into new life by the same God who redeems us through Christ and by the power of His Spirit. Just as God's creative power once made us to be human, so now the Spirit's renewative power enables us to be fully human. And as we gather, different things happen. We, we sing songs. Just about anywhere you go in a Christian worship service, you'll find singing. One of the reasons for this is because it is this fully bodied action that activates the whole person. Okay, we've got our lungs going, our vocal cords going, we're standing up. And songs have this, this imaginative power. It's a mode of expression that resides in our imagination. It sticks with us. It, it tethers to our identity. This is why you see subculture so easily form around different genres of music. Because the songs that you sing often identify you as a human being. They often constitute and express who you see yourself as. And songs have this ability to be sticky inside of us. Which is why it's important that, that in Christian worship we sing songs rich in theology. Expressing gospel truths. That's why when we sing songs, we want to try to make sure songs are more about God than they are about us. Because worship is more about what God is doing and has done than what we are doing or will do. Then we listen. The congregation is gathered. Then the congregation begins to listen. And in this listening portion of our worship service, you have different things happening. You have prayers being offered to God. You have scripture being read. You usually have a sermon being proclaimed. And in all of these aspects, the community of God comes to receive a word from God, to interact with him. Once again, if you're just this kind of Martian anthropologist, sociologist, just taking notes on these human species, in a service, a Christian worship service, you can learn a lot just by this time of prayer. Imagine you're not familiar with prayer. Imagine you've never seen a group of people pray together. Imagine you've never seen a group of eight or nine kids all stop what they're doing, put their hands together, and bow down. And you ask yourself, what's going on? What kind of a world are they living in? What are they participating in? If you were to really tease this out kind of intellectually, here's what you'd find. Prayer is kind of an enactment of a certain cosmology, a certain belief about how the world is operated, the relationship between God and the world. Prayer, in a sense, expresses that we're a people who refuse to settle for appearances, for what seems to be 
in front of us or not in front of us. At the very least, prayer makes us a people who always see that there's more going on than just what's around us, than just what meets the eye. Implicit in prayer is this belief that God is relating to the world in a non-physical manner, in a spiritual manner. A whole ontology or, or belief system in what constitutes reality exists in prayer. It's not just listening to one side of a human conversation. It's seeing a group of people acknowledge that something beyond them exists and is close and is personal. And then they hear the scriptures and listen to a sermon. They're invited to to live in ways that accord with God's law and instruction. They're invited to, to order their lives alongside the grain of the universe. And you might find that implicit in this is a much different idea of freedom than what our modern liberal world, not liberal politically, liberal philosophically, would, would have us believe, would have us um, experience as the reality of our day. So, so in, in modern liberalism, in, in modernity and postmodernity, in the culture that we live in, freedom is expressed libertarianly, which means freedom means we can do whatever we want to do. We can determine our own lives. We can make our own destinies. Inherent, though, or implicit in listening to a divine law or instruction is this different view altogether of freedom is a much more biblical view of freedom or ancient view of freedom, which, which would be that freedom is really the ability to be rightly ordered. In, in the scriptures, we're not free to do anything. We're free for something. Freedom is not from an obligation. Freedom is for the correct responsibility. You see this um, playing out in, in reality all the time, right? You might be free to make your own choices and go down the wrong path, but the farther down that wrong path you get, the more you find yourself enslaved with addictions and habits that swallow you whole. In a Christian worship service, inherent in the very process of coming to listen and receive, to submit ourselves underneath, it's this view of a people who recognize what true freedom is and what it's not, and who refuse to allow their idea of freedom to be determined by um, the culture at large. Christian worship shaped deeply by an explicit articulation of the story of the scriptures. This is why often the sermon seems so important in a Christian worship service. It's usually the most explicit moment where we look at the plot of the story where we ask ourselves and challenge ourselves to be characters in this story, where we look at the habits and the practices of, of saints and heroes in this story that we might imitate, where we're provided guidance and training for our future roles and responsibilities. It's because we're storytelling animals that inhabiting the story of Scripture is the primary way our desires are aimed towards the kingdom. The narrative of the scriptures, the the books of the canon that we've been given, they become the primary bank for us to to make deposits out of for our imaginations and to shape how and who we are in the world. You've got gathering, you've got listening, then you've got communion. The people of God now commune together after they listen. Christian worship culminates in a gathering around the table, another sacrament that is kind of this very compact picture of the whole of worship, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. 
where we're given a tangible expression of God giving of himself so that we might have relationship with him in salvation and forgiveness. The story that we've been hearing and rehearsing in worship now comes to life with illustrations, with bread and with wine. It's a tangible performance of the gospel. It's a deeply moving practice. Just like songs tend to make words stick in our memory, so the sights and smells and the rhythms of the Eucharist, they seem to make the story of the gospel come alive, kind of wriggle into our imaginations in a way that that might otherwise not happen. At the Eucharist, we're given a picture of what the world should be like, even though it's not always this way. The feast of forgiveness and reconciliation. At the Eucharist, we are invited to see that the goal of God's work in Christ is to bring us to himself. And we eat with the creator. We dine with the king. At communion, we're invited to recognize that we belong now together as one body, a social political reality that transcends boundaries and nations and states, allegiances and families. At the table, we come together as human beings. This is why we're called to practice forgiveness and reconciliation. In the scriptures, we're told that if if you've got something between yourself and a brother or sister, you need to figure that out before you come to the table. So often our our Eucharistic practices are a little individualized now, but you can imagine um, how the table has this kind of inherent reconciliatory process in it. Um, I don't know if any of you watched the Gilmore Girls. I've never seen it, um, but I've been told of it. And uh, in the Gilmore Girls, there's this commitment, I guess, to, to eating dinner together, although there's often conflict in the relationship and the family. And so you have scenes where they're kind of white-knuckled around the table. And they're kind of forced to have conflict with one another and get over certain things, have conversations about things that are much else easily swept under the table. This is what's happening in a religious, spiritual, capital S sense at the table is as humanity comes together around the gift of Christ. And then just as we've been gathered, then we are sent. Christian worship doesn't end with dismissal, like a class is now over. It ends with a new commissioning, a challenge and a blessing, a benediction. To God in peace, to bear God's image, to finally be the people that we are made to be. And to the extent that we lose these historic practices of worship, to the extent that we don't make sure that these practices of worship are committed to by ourselves and are loaded with the narrative of Scripture, we lose the formative power of worship, the ability of it week after week after week to shape us into people who see the world differently, who interact with the world differently. So so one of the big traditional Christian practices of worship that has slowly kind of been removed from the scene in evangelical Christianity, and indeed in our church itself, it's the practice of confession. And so this perhaps is proof that this series, these last couple sermons we've been talking about worship are not just a pat on our back of look at what we're doing and and what it means and how it shapes us. This is an area where, as I've been reading and studying, I've been convicted and go, okay, we've we've kind of come out short here. We're kind of lumped into the rest of this group that maybe has lost something powerful. So traditionally in Christian worship, there's a time, um, usually right after the call to worship or around the listening area, 
where the community together confesses its sins. And what happened is that around the 1980s, as the megachurch movement started to happen, there was a change in strategy in churches, and, and you began to have seeker-sensitive services. And the idea is to make this a more comfortable place for more people to come, we're going to get rid of the more churchy-type elements and things that might make people uncomfortable that they're not familiar with, things of that nature. And one of the first to go, and one that has largely stayed out, was this practice of confession. You see this taken to its kind of logical extreme in a church where, and they exist, some of our biggest churches exist like this, a church where sin is not talked about, where the cross is not even talked about. Because this is a very churchy, old-fashioned type of, of concept. Taking confession out of the service is like a small step on that route. But we might wonder together, and I've been wondering what we lose when we get rid of this practice of confession. What if we lose an important counterformative aspect of worship, of the gospel, that pushes back on secular liturgies of self-confidence that we're taught all week long, implicitly teaching us to believe in ourselves, these fake gospels of self-assertion that refuse God's grace? What if, maybe paradoxically, the seeker-sensitive strategy got it wrong and Confession is precisely what human beings long for. What if we still want to confess our sins and perhaps we don't realize it often until we're given the opportunity? There's TV shows and and literature that seems to recognize this. I don't know if you're familiar with True Detective. Um, Season one, not season two, not worth watching, but season one of True Detective. It's a little dark. I don't know what your media sensitivities are, um, but it's a a very interesting show. There's a character in the show, Detective um, Russ, who's the interrogator, okay? And he's the one who gets the confessions. And there's this very powerful moving scene in there where he's talking about his strategy, how he is so effective at getting these confessions and in, in these interrogations. And he says this, and, and it's very, I think, haunting. He says, look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty, especially. And everybody is guilty. What if, what if that's the place that confession plays in a Christian worship service? An opportunity for us to find a cathartic experience of acknowledging our faults and our wrongs. Like Russ says, the guilty especially needs somewhere to put this, this, this shame and this guilt. And the Christian Narrative, the gospel, says that we are guilty. Every week that we gather, we are guilty of sins of commission and omission, things we've done and not done. And in a more traditional worship environment, you might have a prayer that the congregation says together. It might go like this, merciful God, this is one example. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves, We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. What would a a community that prays a prayer like that every week, how, how might they be formed in their understanding of what it means to come before a holy and beautiful God? 
and what it means to feel safe and confident in the environment of others equally guilty to say we're all in the same boat. We've been tasked with being those who bear God's image and yet we've not borne it well. But we come with the confidence that God's grace accepts us and assures us that we're forgiven and loved as we are and given the power of the Spirit to go forth and do better and be more faithful. It's thoughts like this that have made me commit to talking to our our worship leaders here at the church and, and wonder, how might we incorporate some type of confession in our service? As a, as a historic, traditional practice of worship that seems so loaded with the narrative of the gospel, with the story of God reconciling the world to himself. This is the power and the promise of worship, the body of Christ coming, being called, and then being sent. We're called to refine our place in the story. We're called to be reshaped into the image of God and then sent out to bear witness to the reality of the good news in the world around us. A lot of this is, is kind of like talking about kissing, right? I mean, it kind of loses the point. You just want to get in there and get dirty. When you, it's analyzing something that's a powerful experiential thing. And so with that in mind, we'll, we'll pray, and then I'll invite you up to eat and to drink. We're going to rehearse to literally inhabit the story of God's reconciliation, that our imaginations might be transformed and converted, that our desires and our wants might be shaped appropriately, and that we might be formed into the people who bear God's image faithfully. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for our our time together in worship. We thank you for the collective wisdom passed down throughout the church on ways that we can intentionally gather and find our hearts and minds attuned to who you are and what you would have for us. I pray that this morning, as always, your spirit would be at work powerfully in us. But as we rehearse the gospel, as we inhabit the story, as we are reminded both of the narrative and of our role inside of it, that you would move powerfully inside of us to to allow us to find further areas of life and peace and joy and security in Christ. Fathers, we've been gathered. I pray that you will continually send us out, that we might be ambassadors of the good news in our communities, in our homes, in our workplaces. We thank you for the gift of worship. We thank you that you have called us to worship, and we now respond. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.